So it is Dave Papavisi and Eric Gilmore. We are continuing First John chapter 2. This is part 2. We're looking at verse 15 here. The scripture says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. First point for me when I look at this is he has pinned two loves against each other, a love for the Father and a love for the world. And I would venture to say he is teaching us these loves are mutually exclusive, meaning they cannot mix. And I would say also that he's showing us our love relationship with God is the deliverance from the love of this world and vice versa. If you love the world and place your affections and attention upon the things of this world, it will affect uh, love for God or even it, it almost actually shows that there isn't a love exchange with God. To me, as I read that, I love that love is placed at the center of holiness and separation unto God and sanctification. Has that jumped out to you before? Yes. Yeah, no, it's great. That's, um, that's so important. I think it's important for everybody who's listening to really get a hold of what you just said. And, and when he says, do not love it, it also tells me something. Number one, it tells me that it's a choice, Mm. right? It's, it's, it's a choice, but then it harkens back that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. S- similar to in the garden where you may eat of any tree in the garden, right? But except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the, the command is primarily a command to eat upon what God has provided concerning himself. Uh, as he's revealed there in the garden, that, that cosmic temple where Adam and Eve were formed. But then one tree is excluded. And so I, I, I see it the same way. It's every time the Lord commands, he also empowers in the very, in, in the very, the, the very giving of the instruction, we're empowered to obey the instruction. Hmm. And so number one, when he says, do not love the world, it's in the very command that he embeds the grace and, and, and the power to not love it. And then it's, it's, it harkens back or it reminds us, okay, wait a minute. The foundational command of love is to love him. And so I think it's important that when we read, do not love the world, we keep those things in, in, in beautiful tension. Number one, it's, it's by loving him, like you just said. And then number two, if he tells me not to, in his very words, he empowers me to do it. Like Peter, remember, if that's you, bid me to come. When Jesus is walking on the water in the midst of the storm, Jesus says, come. Peter knows he has a revelation concerning Jesus that if he commands it, he empowers it. Ezekiel, I think, was told by the Lord to get up on his feet, to stand up. And the scripture says that the spirit of the Lord stood him on his feet. As the command comes forward, the empowerment to do it comes. Do you think this is very similar to God works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. I think it's, it's, it's a both and issue. I think it's the Lord performs the work and there must be an agreement in our hearts with what he's desiring. It's, you know, we have a decision to make, but ultimately the power issues forth from him. So yeah, hundred (laughs) percent. That's great. You know, when you fall in love, your attention is, fixed on a person, you know, like you and Danielle, you know, for years now, you guys have walked in love with each other. There's a, there's a fixation upon one another. She's in your mind. She's constantly in, in involved in everything in your life. Everything that you do in a sense has her in mind because she is your, your wife, you know, the one that you love. It's one of the expressions of love to integrate all of life with that person in, in essence, in essence, marriage itself. And so to love the father 
I think is irreplaceable or, or uh, yeah, it's almost uh, you can't say you love the father and not have him integrated into every decision that you make because your attention and affection are upon him. And so I think that a lot of people struggle with sin and affections for this lower world because their affection and attention are not upon the father. It's almost like when Paul writes in Romans, uh, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. (laughs) I'm alive to you now. I can perceive you. I can sense you. You now are my attention, not the old man in the, the old way. So I think that's important too to, to, to show a deliverance from sin in this affectionate attention set upon God. I mean, I know in my life that has been the deliverance from sin. Have you felt the same thing that sin has been, um, I don't know, overcome in your life by this very means of giving more attention and affection to God? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's a couple of things that come to mind. One, Jesus in the wilderness. And even as we'll, we'll get into, you know, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and the pride of life and how that reminds us of, of, of Israel's trek through the wilderness, their own temptations that Jesus conquers when he's in the wilderness. But it's what comes out of him in the midst of that pressure is the word of the Lord that he has been beholding, the living word of the Lord. It's it's his fascination is with the father, which is why the father speaks of him when he's in standing in the Jordan river before he's ever performed any miracle. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm more pleased. This is the one upon whom I've set my love who finds his ultimate, you know, contentment and satisfaction in me, you know, as, as the father would say. And so it's, it's, it's a, it's a war for beauty. It, there's a reason where even in the, in, in the 10 commandments, make no graven image. We see Moses going up to the mountain, right? Soon after the deliverance. I mean, it's, it just shows us how somebody can be powerfully delivered or have a, have a powerful revelation of who God is. And there is a, is a cosmic wedding ceremony of sorts at Mount Sinai. And, and, and Moses goes up to behold God and they're sitting there in the camp and, and, they start to get bored. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's almost like they have an itch. Like, what's next? What's going on? And that, that unsurrendered carnal nature on inside of them that they have not yielded up to the Lord. You know, let's make an idol. And so they make, of course, they make the, the golden calf. And the Lord says, don't make any graven images. The idea is that if we are beholding his beauty and we're fascinated with his beauty, we won't look to another. But I think it's so easy for us to, to adopt the, the graven images that this antichrist world system creates to replace what God alone must be to us, right? The creator and the creation and how so we so per- perfectly fit together. And so it's, it's, it's a war for fascination. It's a war over fascination. It's a war over beauty. Um, and that's why when Jesus is tempted, right, in the wilderness, and certainly I can, of course, in, in our own lives, what comes out, right? It is written from the mouth of God, right? It's, it's, uh, that's what comes out. <laughs> what comes out is what he's fascinated with. That's beautiful. I remember reading Adolf Safer said that in the wilderness, Jesus showed us that the word of God was both his sword and his tent. He hid in it and he fought with it. So it goes on here. All that is in the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Can you can you touch on all three of those and kind of give people an understanding of what these three things are? Yeah, for sure. So I think even when, when we talk about the world, when he says, do not love the world, and then he mentions these three things, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And then again, these are from... The, the world, not from the father, but the world. I think it's important for people who are listening to understand he's not talking about like creation in general. You know, he's not talking about like, uh, like a meal that you enjoy or, you know, going on a date with your wife or, you know, playing basketball with your son or something. He's talking about a, a, an invisible demonic network. It's a system at play that and, and I'll just read this. I'll, I'll read this from Ephesians chapter two, just to give a little bit more imagery 
for those that are curious, like, what is he talking about? So in Ephesians 2, verse 1, he says, Paul says, you were dead. You were dead, right? So it's <laughs> not like you were prior to faith in Christ, dead, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins mm-hmm. in which you once walked. And now he's about to explain what, what John is talking about. You know, it's, he says, following the course of this world, mm. following the prince of the power of the air. So there's a course, there's a, there's, a, there's a stream. Everything is moving in a particular direction. There's an influence that is ultimately governed by the prince of the power of the air. The spirit, it's a spiritual realm, it's a spiritual world that, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then he goes on to say, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love. And so that to me is, is, is Paul talking about the same, he's, he's describing the same imagery. This is the world system. We were dead in sin. There is a course of this world. There is a system that is contrary to Christ, the revelation of Christ, the will of God. And he goes on, and it's it's not coincidental that in the very next section, in verse 18, he says, Children, this is the last hour, as you have as you as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. And even now there are many Antichrists. Why this talk about the Antichrist or Antichrists and the spirit and how it seduces the world and how it seduces the church? Because that's the world system. We are alive in this world, you know, uh this on this earth that belongs to the Lord that will be renewed. There will be a new creation, but the system is, is utterly demonic. So anyways, the, the fundamental value system of this system, mm-hmm. of this world system reflects the heart values of the devil himself. Mm-hmm. And that is to be slaves of bodily appetites, right? Mm-hmm. Perverted bodily appetites that are unsurrendered to the Lord to be slaves to the love of, of, of money is how I would say, that's how I would summarize to me. And I'd love to hear what you would say about the, the lust of the eyes, but it's, 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 it's desire for treasure outside of God as the absolute treasure. And then it's uh, the pride of life, which is the self-obsession of man, (laughs) mankind, self, mankind is self-obsessed with himself, right? Uh, That's how I would, break it down, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as well. I love that you said value system to explain the network, the demonic net. I love that because when I first heard that value system, I heard it from Art Katz and I didn't understand at first what that actually means and why that's so important. But value system, like you said, is connected to desires. And you, you just said that the value system of this world is according to the devil's desires, the adversary's desires. And I really feel like that right there understood changes the entire ball game for Christians to understand value system is, is everything to us. What is important to you? How do you see things to be valuable and what's not valuable? the treasures of the the person of Jesus Christ, the excellencies of his wonderful name. These things are of utmost value to the Christian, loving one another and having our hearts set upon God and living sanctified unto him. These are the highest values of, of a Christian, but the world has no value for any of those those things. And yet they, re, they, they replace them with, like you said, bodily Loyalty, loyalty to their own bodies, loyalty to their own minds, loyalty to their own image, their own selves. It's, you know, self-infatuation. You know, as Vance Havner said, if Jesus didn't come to save us from self-infatuation, I don't know what he came to do. That's the essence, the self-life is the essence of the bad value system that in 1 John 5.19 says the whole world 
lies under the power of the wicked one. So I, I think what you're saying there with value system needs to be digested freshly in the church. What, where do our values lie? And this will show us what kingdom we're a part of. And if we love the father or if we, if we love the world. Yeah, no, that's really good. And, and it's really important, I think, especially in our generation, as, you know, dark is getting darker, you know, light is becoming lighter. It's, there's less room for gray area, I feel, in the years ahead. But that's a good thing for the church. It's good that the Lord is shaking the things that can be shaken. Because sometimes it's easy to live like in a gray area and have uh, an affinity for the Lord but not really recognizing perhaps how compromised areas of our hearts may be. It's almost like lot, you know, the scripture says that his righteous soul was tormented, right? So it's, we see how the Lord saw something inside of his heart. The, the, those who are righteous, like Abraham are righteous by faith, right? They're, they're made righteous by faith. That's what made Abraham the father of our faith. It's, it's using that same terminology for lot, meaning he believed before he ever fulfilled any particular command in his heart he genuinely was convinced Yahweh was the true God right but his his face was set towards Sodom right like he wanted something on the inside of the value system of his heart right the desires of his heart pulled him towards that city that godless city which is which was uh like a, a reformation in, in a way, it was like a reformation of Babel. Hmm. You know, when, when they gathered together, to me, Babel, interestingly, is just south of Baghdad here in Iraq. <laughs> but it's, I actually went to the location, by the way. I went to the location. Really? Went to the location. They still have the old ruins, Nebuchadnezzar's ruins. You're it's, it's wild. No, I mean, Iraq has, oh yeah, no, it's still, I mean, they showed us the wall, a Muslim man who was like a tour guide was like, this is the wall that the Old Testament speaks of where the handwriting no happened. Way. Crazy enough, Alexander the Great, when he conquered all, and he conquered going from Europe all the way to India, and then he pretty much felt like, you know, conquered the, the then mostly, most of the then known world, and he felt like his heart still didn't find satisfaction, went back and sat on the same throne of Nebuchadnezzar in the same palace and ended up dying there. Something on the inside, the spirit on the inside of him, like bore witness with the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar. It's crazy. You know what I mean? Like wow. these, these men that want to conquer outside of God. Anyways, Babel to me represents the, 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 a system, a network, a city being formed, right? It's, wow. it's a, engineered in such a way to try to create a utopia on earth a, a, a version of the Garden of Eden on earth to try to find immortality. And why do they build a tower? And why do we have here even modern day Iraq ziggurats? They're called ziggurats today because those towers were temples where they would covenant. They would call upon gods and covenant with them. So they were seeking to call upon powers and principalities and, and covenanting with fallen powers and principalities to try to create heaven on earth without God invited to it. They wow. said, we will make a great name for ourselves. The Lord splits their tongues. And then he calls Abraham and he says, I will make a great name for you. So their hearts were twisted in the fact that they wanted to be exalted as God by, by, by yielding themselves to fallen powers and principalities. But the Lord says, because Abraham receives me in a covenant way, one who loves, one who obeys as his God, I will make a great name for him because he, why? Because now their names are inextricably linked. Whenever you hear Abraham, you know, it's Yahweh. <laughs> their names have blended into one another. Obviously it's, it's Yahweh's name is the name above all names, Jesus's name, but we are in him and he is in us. You know, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Bro, you are overflowing with God and clarity divine, bro. I, I listening to you. I'm just like having I don't even know, like a 
like a spiritual experience just listening to these things. <laughs> it's just Iraqi. It's, it's Iraqi history. So I'm interested. It's, it's, it's biblical Iraqi Mesopotamian history. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's true, man. What you're saying, the gray lines are going away. Uh, I just actually read uh, Ruth chapter one and Orpah and Ruth marry into a Jewish family. And the Jewish family obviously worships God. But after the crisis of the, the husband's dying, there's a choice that has to be made in the midst of the crisis. And Orpah goes back to her old gods and Ruth says, no, your God is my God. She has this right. desire to be with Yahweh. And she says, where you go, I go. She lost her own will. Where you go, I go. She gave up her will in an attempt to find or remain in the presence of God, if, if you will. As a matter of fact, in the second chapter, Boaz tells her she found refuge in God. Uh, so you have this like incredible picture of crisis causing a division between those who choose God and give up their wills and those in the midst of crisis who had a love for Naomi, but not enough to end their will. They still had their own will and they went their own way and went back. Um, I think... Yeah. As long as there's something for us to go back to, we will go back to it. Yeah. But with, yeah, I think say with Peter, who says, Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. All the doors are, I have nowhere else to go. I've put all my eggs in one basket. Yeah. So that's, that's beautiful. And, and he says in verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Uh, Jesus says on that day, many will stand before him and say, did we not do all these things in your name? But, but it comes down to those who obey, the, who do the will of God mm. um, that he knew or did not know. It, 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 you know. it makes me think about those that are believers, but their experience of faith is not a joyful one, right? Mm. It's, it's, it's a miserable one. They're trying to hold on to their will, but still follow Jesus. And so their experience is like, why is it that you talk about Jesus the way you talk about Jesus and, or the person, this other person that I know. And, but my experience is not like that at all. And there could be different reasons for it. But I think one of the fundamental issues will always go back to the fact that you're trying to hold on to your life mm -hmm. and, 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 and grasp for his at the same time. And it reminds me of a story also, what you said about uh, some of the early uh, pilgrims, discoverers of, of, of the United States. I think they were from Spain. I'm not sure. But I remember this one particular story where they came and they had landed in what they considered to be the promised land and, and you know, for them, you know, get religious freedom, whatever the case was. And when they landed on the shores, those that were, you know, it took them months to get there. They probably lost people along the way, and, but they came with a mission. So they said, burn the ships. The captains of the ships said, burn the ships. They, they wanted to, to, to do away with anything that was connected to giving them an, op an opportunity or a possibility to go back. Like we, we've invested, we came here for this. Do you know what I mean? I think I think sometimes when we come to the Lord, we 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 try to leave those things on the shores as like a I don't know I don't know why maybe it's like a Plan B maybe some who knows why it is but we need to set a, set set those things alight. You know, that's so great. That old hymn is coming to mind: "Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus." <laughs> so it says, children. It is the last hour. I remember years back, you and I were talking about the fact that John has the first teachings for the children is remember this thing's almost over. <laughs> it's like, this is the last, <laughs> this is the first thing you need to get under your belt as children of God. This thing is ending. It is going to a certain doom, that kind of understanding of the fleetingness of this world and eyes fixed on the next world that changes quote, the value system of a person. Yeah. One of the things of the utopia you're talking about where God's not invited to the party. One of the things about that is a, a foreverness here. It is 
it has no view of the world to come, even as the, the Proverbs say um, that there is a uh, fear of God that remembers there is a hereafter. The fear of God remembers there is a hereafter. So to forget the hereafter in one sense removes the fear of God to a certain degree in a person. Yeah, yeah person's life. So he establishes this children, remember this, see this, let this be in your mind. It's the last hour. We have 60 minutes left guys. <laughs> I remember, um, Steve Hill used to say, plan like Jesus is not coming back in your life. Live as if he's coming back tonight. So you, you have a attention on the inside. Yes. We enjoy life to the fullest, but at the same time, we remember this world is not my home. I remember years back, I went to help Reinhard Bunky with his uh, TV. Something wasn't working with his TV and I had to try to figure it out for him. And while I'm there, I'm trying to figure it out. And the TV, I think broke or something. And I look at him and I'm thinking he's going to be so upset. I just ruined the TV. And he looks at me and he goes, this world is not my home. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, right. what, what are you thinking about that? It's the last hour. Yeah, and it's so prevalent. It's so prevalent in the Old Testament where the day of the Lord, I mean, that's like the, the prophet always carried the message of like the day of the Lord. And speaking of his return, like there will be a reckoning. And then in the New Covenant, it's the same. It's, it's all throughout the New Testament. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. John talks about it. Peter talks about it. It's, it's all throughout scriptures. The Lord is, is, is seeking to bring us back to that reality so that we don't fall asleep, you know, and, and, and this is the interesting thing is even, even with the, the virgins, you know, the, the foolish and the wise virgins in Matthew 25, they both fall asleep, right? But five have oil and five don't. So the idea, they're both waiting for the bridegroom. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is that it takes longer than they anticipated. They both fell asleep. So when it says it's the last hour, I'm sure this has been preached in generation past, like Jesus is coming back in our generation, you know, and, and one thing we know for sure, we're closer now than we've ever been. And we should also, as the sons of Issachar and as Jesus instructs the Jews of his day, pay attention to the signs of the times. Because I do believe there are prophetic things that the Lord is doing in our generation that have never happened, speaking of his return. But even if it's not in our generation, it's our last hour. Right? Like if you're alive and you're listening, like this is your last hour. <laughs> and so, yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's so great. It really teaches you to number your days so that you can present to him a heart of wisdom. There's something about it. I remember reading Fenelon's letters and he says, uh, tomorrow you're not promised. And even if you do have tomorrow, it's not yours anyways. <laughs> it belongs to the Lord. So he says here, just as you heard the antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have been or have appeared from this, we know that it is the last hour. He unites together the lateness of the hour, the setting of the sun with the rise of antichrists. The opposition to Christ rises as the sun sets. The, the lower the sun gets, right. the higher the rising of, of opposition. That's a good illustration. Yes. So he says, they went out. Look at this, man. They went out from us, but they were not really of us for if they had been of us they would have remained with us but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us are you are you seeing in this that these antichrists were possibly part of the church at one time or or do you see something different yeah 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 no 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 so so i i agree i think what he's talking about so he's 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 starting by speaking to believers and saying, do not love the world. Be aware that we are living in a world system that is being governed by the value systems of the fallen prince and power of the air. And then he goes on to talk about that, right? So and you said there's a competing, there are competing loves. Mm -hmm. They are mutually exclusive from, to, to one another. And, and then he starts to talk about the Antichrist, both as the man right? That is the competitor to the Christ, right? The demonic bridegroom, because he has the great harlot as his, as his bride, which is in essence, the world system. The world system in the book of Revelation is, is 
given a coin coined or given a term, the great prostitute or the great harlot with whom all the kings of the earth commit adultery and fornicate, right? They are made rich by her. Mm-hmm. She gives them pleasures. She promises them things that she's not going to be able to keep. And the answer and the antichrist is the groom, right? Her, the, the demonic bridegroom. So it's this, we see this comparison and contrast, but it's also, I believe the men that ultimately rule the world system. It's, it's the man, but it's ultimately the men. And he goes on to say in this section here, he speaks about seduction and deception in the church uh, in this section from 18 to like, you know, 27, 28. And so he, he, and not just him, uh, you know, Paul talks about it. I know John talks about it. Peter talks about it again. Other authors of the New Testament talk about it, about how seducers, deceivers, Jesus says false prophets will rise up, deceive many. They will rise up and deceive many. And uh, I do believe that he's talking about a spirit of seduction and a spirit of deception that's always been present in this world system. But like you said, as the sun is setting, this spirit of delusion and seduction is, is, is rising. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll, oh, let me say this. Yeah. I'm sorry. But to the degree that the heart is compromised by the love of the world, seduction is made possible. Seduction because I know somebody may be like, oh my, okay, so what should we be paranoid then? Should I, should I, as a believer, should I be paranoid in light of the last days in the spirit of seduction and deception? It's, it's to the degree that our hearts are bent away from the love of God and fascination with his beauty and towards like Lot, our face or our heart's inclination set towards Sodom, this world system. To that degree, we make ourselves uh, more likely, let's say, to, to be seduced and deceived. I agree, which makes it very simple. The love of God is your protection. Give him all your attention. Find all in him. Don't look to the world or others to be for you what only he can be. And if you just stay right in that simple love exchange with him, finding all there in his will, as Bunky used to say, the will of God is my home. You make your home in God's will and in his heart. You are, you are in the refuge of the most high, the divine shadow of the almighty, wherein David sings and rejoices. <laughs> Praise God. But look at what it says in connection with what you're just talking about now with the rise of Antichrist. You have an anointing from the Holy One. And you all know, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lies of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is The Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son, whoever denies the Son denies, uh, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. It seems to me he's wanting them to remain deeply united with the gospel the antidote for all of this is the gospel keep the gospel as as this the forefront the center as as we as we've said before from dane ortland the gospel is not the runway for the plane to come off the ground the gospel is the engine in the plane it keeps the plane in the sky it keeps the plane going it gets the plane off the ground the gospel must be remembered as charles spurgeon said the most important daily habit a christian can possess is to remind himself of the gospel daily remind yourself of the gospel but i love that it says here you've received an anointing from the holy one the word anointing is great because it has to do with smearing this is touch yeah because if i was to smear something on you right now i can't do it without touching you and so the anointing is the direct touch of the Lord, which I think he even started out the whole book with. He who we have touched with our hand, we've had direct contact with God. So this anointing of the gospel is the touch or the kiss of God upon the human soul. In That's the good. gospel, man receives God's kiss. That's the divine direct contact with God. 
God teaches by touch. He teaches by touch. It's, it's experiential knowledge of God in the gospel that is the protection from this antichrist slash whatever, what does he call it here? A going directly against God and his son. It's <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's good, man. Um, yeah. He says he who denies the son does not have the father either. And so I think the idea there is, you know, more and more we're seeing it even prevalent in our own generation where somebody will say, well, no, I believe in God. I just don't believe in God the way you believe in God. Yeah. I've heard people tell me who once walked closely with Jesus tell me, I still believe in Jesus, but just not the way that you do. Wow. And in essence, what they were saying is, I want for the sake of conscience sake or whatever the reason, whatever the reason, the motivation would be to, to maintain a faith in a God, but a God of my own formation, a God that I can form and shape in my own image. <laughs> and so he who, who says, I have faith in God. I believe that life is, is my life is created for a purpose is designed for a purpose and that cannot be found outside of the light of God. He who says that must also say, and that light has been explicitly revealed in the life and the words and the events of Jesus Christ, his son. That is the prism through which we can know God. It, it, the buck stops there, right? With the person of Jesus, the God man, right? The only 200% man that ever lived, 100% God, 100% man, and his words. And so, and, and when he talks about the, the uh, like you were talking about, it's, it's, it's through the anointing. I was just thinking about too, as you were talking, the priests, right? We see a pattern at Sinai, the tabernacle. God says, I know he marries them on the mountain. And then he says, I want to go with you, right? I want to live with you in a camp. So there's, there's this sacred space that's created. That's this overlap of two realms, almost like a picture of the garden of Eden. And there's even imagery of the garden of Eden, even in the tabernacle, you know, the Holy of Holies has a veil and embedded on it is trees and pomegranates. And, but all that to say, the priests goes in the high priest once a year, right? Into the Holy of Holies, but the priests go in and what happens when they go in, there is incense burning. It's a sensitory experience, right? They're there to experience God and to mediate before him. They smell the incense before them. They taste the bread. They, right, they see the light of the menorah, right? The candlesticks. So it's, it's sight, it's smell, it's taste, right? It's, it's the high priest goes and he has the bells around his ankles once a year. It's sound. Right. The entire worship experience of engaging the Lord as a priest, and we are a nation that is a priesthood, as Israel was, and now us as the church, is a sensory worship experience. Right. That's the anointing that you're talking about. And that's why he says, you know him. You know him. That's why Paul says, if even if an angel were to come to try to bring a revelation concerning God, contrary to the gospel that saved you. <laughs> That, that the inner witness of the spirit, that Romans eight inner witness, I know I'm a child of God. Praise God. You know, that's, that's what he's talking about. That's glorious. You're reminding me of a quote from Hudson Taylor in his amazing book, Union and Communion. He said that Song of Solomon is the divine warrant for the desire for sensible manifestations of his presence. Because in the very first few verses, you have all the senses touched in relationship with the bride and the bridegroom, which is amazing as well, that worship is a sensory experience. I remember A.W. Tozer wrote in his book, Whatever Happened to Worship, he said, worship is a presence we experience. That's, that's the essence of what it is. We're worshiping God. Yes, we give ourselves up. Yes, we put him high above all things. But the result of that, as C.S. Lewis said, God communicates his presence to man in the process of being worshiped. And as we put him where he belongs, we're able to feel the way we're supposed to feel, which is united with God, peace with God, the joy of his presence, 
the uniting with God that we were, that we were made for. But he goes on here and he says, this is the promise which he himself made to us eternal life, which we know is not just life that lasts forever, long lasting life, but to know him as Jesus tells us, as a matter of fact, John's the one that told us Jesus ever said that, that this is eternal life, that they would know uh, you and your son or, or you know me and, and the one who sent me. These things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. This is one of the reasons why he even writes the letter is to protect them from deception, accepting anything or moving beyond the gospel. The gospel is, like you said, the buck stops here. This is the foundation. This is the the continued faith. I just heard today from David Pawson. Do you ever listen to him? David Pawson? I've I've read I've read some of his stuff, yeah. Yeah, I was listening. I haven't heard, but I've I've read. Yeah, he's got this thing series called Unlocking the Bible and he goes through every book of the New Testament. But he says that the Greek word or tense for um God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him he says that the Greek tense is can goes on believing to continue, mm. continually believe. It's not that in a moment, it's like, it's a continual belief. This is why Paul, he says in his letters is hold on to the faith that you had because everything in this world system and the value system of this world is trying to pull you away from this simple faith in the gospel. As a matter of fact, in Galatians, Paul calls those men who have come to take them away from the gospel. He calls, uh, or he says they came to disturb your faith or take away the settled peace that comes through the gospel. They're disturbers, if, if you will. Wow. And so we, we see here that this promise of eternal life and protection from deception is that anointing, which you have received from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing, that direct touch from his own person teaches you, that's continual. There's a consistent experience that comes from God, teaches you about all things, is true and is not a lie. Just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So if I was to sum up everything here in my personal opinion, I would say that God's touched us through the gospel and that in the gospel we touch God. And this is the continuous teaching and abiding and consistent growth and progress and protection that we need. What would you say? Yes. Wonderful. Yeah. I think it's so important for believers to acquaint themselves with their God, acquaint thyself with God. And, and, and like you mentioned, to really immerse ourselves in the understanding of the gospel, to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal these simple yet deep truths to us, because the entirety of scripture is really the unfolding of the gospel. The gospel can be shared in a five minute message, three minute message, right? Just the elements of the, the core gospel, 60 seconds even. But, but, but the scriptures at the whole of the scriptures is really the unfolding of this simple revelation of God, the depths of his beauty yeah. from, from eternity past, eternity future. And it's important because I think sometimes believers, maybe because of naivety or because, you know, you know, different reasons, maybe the lack of understanding of the gospel. Sometimes they'll just, you know, they'll sit underneath the teaching. They'll listen to somebody preach and teach the word. And I'm not saying that we need to be like paranoid, but if you're, if you know something, if you've touched something before, you know, like somebody who works like in, let's say like a leather worker or works in retail, you know, in high, high quality leathers, let's say. The person doesn't need to be like paranoid about fake leathers. They're around real leather so much that if somebody tries to pass off a fake, they touch the bag or the jacket and they're like, this is not real leather. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And if you if we acquaint ourselves with the person and with the truth of the gospel, I think it, it, it would the spirit of God will preserve us from. From the spirit of seduction or deception and and the spirit of seduction and perversion will always do certain things. And he talks about it here. Number one, it will deny the person of Christ, right? It will deny that Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. It will try to bring us another way. And it will always somehow manifest itself through the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. It mm -hmm. will promote those things. It cannot like a leopard cannot hide its spots or stripes or whatever they have, right? Like it cannot not promote. Uh -huh. It's, it's, it's internal value systems. It'll always bleed out to that. And so I think it's, in, it's important to say that. Um, oh, and 
you know, you know, I know you and I both. Uh, hello. Yeah, yeah, I'm here. You there? Yeah. So I, I, I know you and I both. Sorry, I know you and I both believe in, have seen, continue to contend for in faith, and God will continue to reveal Himself in these last days in greater ways through signs and wonders. We believe in it. We've seen it in our ministries. I, I pray for more and more. But signs and wonders, just because somebody performs signs and wonders does not mean that their gospel is pure or is true or that they are true. And so I think it's important that we are not deceived by these antichrists who may come, as the scripture even predicts, with signs and wonders that cannot be the ultimate acid test of authenticity. Does it? why, Why do we say that? Moses was given signs and wonders as the church is equipped with and will be equipped with in the last days. But Pharaoh's prophets had signs and wonders, right? <laughs> so I, again, anyways, I just wanted to throw it out there because I'm sure, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it too. Like, what do we do with this? You know, I guess in the last days with, with the spirit of deception. Yeah, that's, that's really good. And it brings us to the verse that is my favorite verse, probably in the entire book. And I printed mm-hmm. it out. I put it in my prayer closet and I used to look at it every single day. It says, little children, Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Goodness gracious. If I could have a scripture tattooed on me, I think it would be be that one. (laughs) Every element is in here. You have the abiding in him, the expectation of his coming, that confidence and not having shame in front of him at his coming. This is, uh, to me, it's like when Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory, he's showing you that your present experience with Christ is the evidence of the return of the Lord. Or like in um, Romans, when it says the love of God is shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Spirit, he says this right after he's speaking of uh, evidence, uh, an evidence that, that God is, is real or that he's coming back. I, what he would call hope, the expectation of his return. And I used to always wonder why does he say in connection with the expectation of the coming of the Lord, why does he say the love of God has been shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy spirit? And it hit me, your taste of the Holy spirit, your experience of the Holy spirit is the, the reality of what's coming. He is the foretaste of glory divine. All of your confidence in what's coming is connected to what you have right now. And the more I present myself before him now, the more I'll be ready to be presented to him when he comes. And the conviction that I have that Jesus will actually split the sky comes from him splitting the sky in my life every day an experience of his presence, his spirit in my life, my abiding of uh, in the Lord is makes the coming of the Lord real to me. Otherwise it just gets filed away in the, you know, Santa Claus file where it's just kind of something that you don't really have a connection with. And some people feel so removed from the Lord or, or the coming of the Lord that they're like, yeah, I just can't even like I don't even, I don't connect with it at all. Some people have even went so far as to preach against it and say, you know, the kingdom is here and now there is no coming of the Lord, but it is the coming of the, it is coming to the Lord every day that puts in us a conviction of the coming of the Lord one day. That's good. So here's a question. Would you, would you, would you say that it's necessary? Verse 28, little children abide in him. Would you say it's necessary for us to have confidence to pursue him unto abiding, which, cre- that, which creates a confidence in us on that day. Do we need confidence to even abide or does abiding create confidence? I think we have in the gospel confidence to come to him. Doesn't it say, doesn't it say or tell us that, that we uh, approach the throne of grace with confidence uh, that we might receive um in time of need. So the gospel is where we see the grace of God. So in the gospel, I, we as believers have confidence before God, but in 
grabbing a hold of the grace that I experience in that confidence in the gospel, I receive confidence for his coming. That's why he, he follows with, if you know that he is righteous, <laughs> you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. There's a confidence in the gospel that brings me confidently before God that gives to me a confidence of God and with God in my life with God. What would you say that the same? Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. That's great. Yeah, I agree 100%. Confidence, man. Confidence. <laughs> Bro, today was crazy. The yeah, stuff. yeah. No, it's, it's scriptures, the scriptures are wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a, a lie. Would you uh, pray for the pray for the people? Um, maybe, maybe whatever you can remember of the things that we touched on, just kind of pray for them. Yeah. Sure. And even, even these last couple of verses here. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we mm -hmm. are children. We are your children. And that gives us confidence. Mm -hmm. The fact, what a great love, even as the next uh, chapter three, verse one says, what a great love that you have bestowed upon us, that you would call us children of God. We are your children. We are your beloved. Thank you, God, that that creates inside of us a confidence that we don't we don't earn and we can't earn, but by virtue of the blood of your son on the cross, Thank you, Lord, that we can approach you with confidence and we can come past the outer courts, past even the holy place into the very holy of holies to behold your face with unveiled face, to behold your face, to be transformed from one measure and one uh, degree of glory to another. Thank you, Lord, that this is our lot in life. And though we may live in a world that is fallen and an antichrist system, thank you, Lord, that it's your spirit and it's your word that's in our hearts. That is both our treasure and our protection. And so, Lord, we pray that we would have a confidence to continue to pursue you, recognizing, realizing who you are. God, grant to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And, Lord, that we may have confidence on that day and live our life by the power of your righteousness. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. 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 So we'll be coming back to you guys with chapter three soon. Uh, if you want to support David Papavici's missions organization. It's called Kingdom Gospel Mission. I'll put a I'll put a link down below. K G M I Q. If you want to send them a, a donation, but uh, love you all. Praying for you, and we will see you in a couple of weeks.